For sports content from the biggest leagues and competitions across the world, look no further than Reuters Connect, Reuters online news content platform. Reuters Connect makes finding the sports content you need easy, whether it's in-depth reporting from Reuters journalists or access to video highlights from around the world. Bring the world of sport directly to your workplace with Reuters Connect. For more information and a free trial, visit ReutersConnect.com. Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Ricardo. Each week, we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Sports professor Riccaro inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports, and we are keeping score. After the Super Bowl, Daytona 500, traditional spring sports in the United States, is the comeback happening? Certainly, with or without fans, the business continues. Let's look at the deal-making issues for the week. Three to one. Three. Across the pond, the ladies' golf tour stretches its legs. Ladies' European tour has unveiled its 2021 schedule. 27 events, most ever in one year. 19 countries, $23 million in prize money. Golf Digest revealed that more than 200 hours of live golf will be shown on broadcast. The Investec South African Women's Open tees off May 13 through 16, but Europe will play host to most of the tournaments, about 23 between June and September. Later in the year, the LET plans on revisiting India, Kenya, and Morocco after having to cancel events in those countries last year, as well as being provisionally set to play in Thailand and Philippines for the first time. And with the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, including golf, 2021 particularly good time for the LET to expand its footprint and reach around the globe. That's deal-making issue number three. Two. Patrick Mahomes in Super Bowl 55, he made football look easy during his first three years as a starter, becoming the youngest player to win the MVP and Super Bowl MVP honors before making another big game this year. Sportico says... Football, the best quarterback ever to play the game, Tom Brady pushed back. Mahone's Chiefs, Chiefs, as you know, silenced 31-9 by the Buccaneers. But he's a new kind of superstar, the marketing people say. Born on the cusp of Gen Z, this year he led NFL players in online engagement in addition to passing yards per game. And even as he struggled against Tampa, Mahomes' scrambles and impossible throws downfield will be just as remembered as anything Brady did. And that makes him perfect for a league increasingly embracing digital media, always hungry for viral moments, turning to influencers to help sell its own leading man to a generation of consumers who weren't even born tuning into telecasts. That's deal-making issue number two. One. Deal-making issue number one is related to the Super Bowl. Despite Super Bowl 55 garnering the lowest audience viewership since 2007, the streaming numbers set new records, 91.6 million traditional views on CBS, the lowest since cable broadcast on a traditional broadcast since 2006. But involvement in those streaming numbers goes to show how times are evolving. YouTube likewise reported viewership of Super Bowl ads on the platform during the game rose over 70%. About 46,000 tweets mentioned Super Bowl ad on February 7th a decrease of 61% from mentioning it February 2, 2020, but yet numbers are up. 
continue to be higher, even though traditional television is not. And look for that trend to continue. Well, this week, we've had one before late earlier in the fall, but the intersection of sports, business, retail, licensing, entertainment happens in polo more than anything else. The gauntlet of polo begins with a million dollars in prize money. Last year's event, the USPA Gold Cup, shortened because of the pandemic, kicked off the season in Wellington near Palm Beach last week. Now we have the gauntlet of polo, the C.V. Whitney Cup, USPA Gold Cup, and the U.S. Open Polo Championship with a million dollars in prize money distributed throughout the event, $500,000 bonus with the USPA Global Licensing Entity making a contribution to the team's charity of choices, so we all understand it's philanthropic, but the impact of polo and the intersection between the polo players And the business is certainly something that gives you perspective. Stuart Armstrong is the chairman of the USPA halfway through his three-year term and probably more. He talks about the on-course, on-field competitiveness. He talks about the U.S. Polo Association. He talks about COVID-19 and its impact. Here's somebody who's an athlete and an administrator... (laughs) But clearly, he talks about the entire sport of polo and the lessons it gives us for comebacks in all sports. Here's Stuart Armstrong. I am uh, excited about uh, talking to a business person who is spending, your own professed statement, a lot of time on running the USPA. So, you know, elevator speech, what's what's the mandate and and how do you do it? Well, it's uh, 5,000 members. 28 board members, so we've got a lot of communicating to do. So that's why it takes so much time. We have umpteen committees, all made up of volunteers, and we have a very good staff that executes on the the board's mandates. So consensus building takes time, and uh, we're, we're, we're busy all the time. Every week we're busy. Consensus building among volunteer board members who are also successful entrepreneurs. That's a lot of consensus building. It's a big job. Yeah. To do it right, it's a big job. So can you talk a little bit about the parameters of the business? You don't have to divulge numbers, but it would be nice for the audience to get some perspective. Well, the business side is a, a branding licensing business, and that's run by Michael Prince, a professional chief executive officer. The USPA side is, is all about administration of an association designed to help the sport. Uh, we do three main things. We, we set handicaps for every player. We have a common set of rules, and then we have some very important tournaments that we want everybody to be able to participate in, and that's our primary goal. But the the revenues from uh, global licensing, uh, we try and use that to make polo better. That's really the simplistic mandate. Well, in the global licensing, and from Michael's perspective, we've had him on before, it's a tremendously understated entity. I mean, when you think about the worldwide revenues, it gives you certainly something to work with. Yeah, no, there's a lot to work with. We have a huge opportunity. The Polo Association is 1890, I think it began. And uh, it's always just been, you know, like I said, to try and maintain the association and keep everybody happy. But now that we have the revenues, we have a whole new challenge. And so that's made management of it much more interesting and more, more complicated. You can remember with 5,000 members uh, and 28 board members and, and a fairly good revenue stream, uh, there's a lot to talk about. 
So the Gauntlet Apollo is a big deal, obviously, a three-tournament set. Why is that set of tournaments so important to the U.S. Polo Association? Well, it's the most competitive set of tournaments in the United States, and that's what's important. To, 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 to enjoy yourself, for the, uh, for the spectator to be interested, uh, you've just got to present the best product. And so what we've done with the Gauntlet is we put together something that, that is challenging uh, all these teams to be their very best, and, and that makes it for a good experience. So uh, for some people that are interested but only moderately aware of what polo is, this is like having three Super Bowls combined in one event in South Florida, basically. Yes, it's, it's, it's challenging the polo community to come forward with the best teams they can come forward with to see who, who, can, who, who can be the best. And that's, that's good in any sport, and that's, that's what we're trying to do for polo. So Team Aspen last year, uh, you made it to the final of the second of the two tournaments, losing by one goal in overtime. Um, so obviously, how did you feel? You were one goal away. So what? Well, we were a bit of an underdog. We, the, the team got put together at the very last minute. The team we played against was organized well in advance and was very well funded. Our team was a little bit of a pull together. And so we weren't expected to do well in the tournaments. We started out and we surprised people and we're doing well and we got a lot of support and it was fun having fans i'm not used to having fans we had fans that were very supportive and they were they were rooting for us because we were kind of david and goliath and we made it to the final had a perfect win record as did they and uh we played them we actually led for a while in the game and that's the only time they had really been headed in the whole tournament we were ahead of them we lost in a sudden death overtime which was too bad, but the experience was fabulous. So let's, let's put the athlete hat on for a minute, then yeah. we'll go back to the administrative. Yeah. The, the goal handicapping system. Now, the, the, the USPA has a very important job. Uh, sub, it's a subjective assessment. Yes. I know you take a lot into yes. account on that, but, yes. but it's everything, right? Yes. One to 10, and, and you start the, 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 the game as a function of how many uh, points in the handicap system your team has. Right. Well, some, some matches are played with a handicap and some matches are played on the flat or open. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, what we have is a, a, a limit for the, the total handicap of the teams so that they're all on the same footing. Uh, but when you play open, then there's no handicap given during the match itself. And so uh, it, 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 the handicaps are only important from the standpoint that the, the total handicap of the team needs to be accurate. When you play a handicap tournament, it becomes even more important that the handicaps are right. So handicaps are a difficult, difficult thing to manage, especially in young players. Young players improve so much more rapidly than older players that in the course of a year, you normally handicap twice a year. Their handicaps vary. So it's a big job there. Big job there. It's a big job in any context because you're also playing. Right. And it's, it's very important to, right. to be able to, to right. do that kind of thing. Uh, you talk about young players. Uh, the sports future, any sports future, is tied into cultivating your young players who come up through the sport. How is polo doing? Well, we're doing very well, actually, because we have interscholastic and intercollegiate yeah. polo, and it's growing rapidly, and the kids love it. They play mainly indoor, and that's their first exposure. Uh, some of them come to school learning to ride, or excuse me, know how to ride. Others have to learn. But uh, polo is a great game. It's really a pity that more people don't get the opportunity to play it because uh, it has so many different aspects that are fun. There's speed, there's danger, there's hand-eye, there's teamwork, 
there's a lot to it. And when a young person gets involved in college or high school, it doesn't take much to get somebody hooked. It's a real adrenaline rush. Uh, there's a lot to it. So uh, those young people are really important to, 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 to get exposed. The difficulty then is they have to go to work. Then they have to come back to polo later. And so we have a lull. And that's really the most difficult challenge polo has is we can introduce young people to polo, but it's very difficult for them to sustain their polo after they leave college and, and handle it on their own without the programs that the colleges offer. Hard to describe, and I don't know how to ask this question really, but if you've seen, and a lot of our listeners and viewers will have never played, probably never even watched, can, can, you, can you explain what, what, the, what the athletics would be versus, you know, hockey, people feel so comfortable, but you're on skates, yeah. and in other sports, you just have you and yourself you're on a horse. I mean, how, how, how hard is it? Okay. The, the <laughs> ice hockey is the most uh, akin to polo. Okay. I've played ice hockey. And because you have to master your skating ability on top of all the other attributes, yeah. there's a similarity. But the horse brings a whole different aspect to polo that is really fulfilling. I mean, you have, a, you have a, an animal that has a personality that you, you bond with, and he is your first teammate. It's a team sport. The teamwork starts between the player and his horses, and you have to have a string of horses, and you have to get to know those horses. They have to know you. You have to practice together. You have to understand what they're going to do in a certain situation, and you have to adapt to that, and you have to, you have to, you have to train together. Then you get a team together, and then the team has to function together, and then you have to have strategies. It's, it's a multitude of detail. Any good team is, is a multitude of details, but in polo, the, the depth of those details is astronomical because, because you're dealing with so many personalities. You've got not just four players on a team, you've got minimum nine horses per player on top of those four players. So you're looking, you're, you're looking at 36, you're looking at 40 individuals that have to be coordinated in order to, to, to produce a superior performance. So the last question of you as a polo player, because then I want to get back to the administrative stuff for a minute. You've had a year since your last uh, uh, gauntlet a, a tournament. You ready to uh, kick some butt? What's the story? Well, I'm in the Ilva Soccer Cup now, which is a preliminary tournament, and I'm using that to get myself up to speed because uh, there's no way you can think your way up to the rhythms that you have to be in to play at the top speed. So, so I'm playing these to, to, to get my mental processes up to the, the pace and get my timing, but I'm going to be ready. Good. There you go. I'm going to be ready. All right. Just for a few more questions relative to the USPA and the business of that, yeah. uh, you know, friends who have run the USGA and the PGA always talk about how important it is not only to cultivate the young golfers, but also to get more and more people into the sport and playing. Yeah. Nobody, everybody doesn't have a horse. Yeah. So how, what, how do you overcome the barrier to entry? There's a financial barrier to entry. There's no avoiding that, that, that fact. But uh, the United States Polo Association has relied too much probably on the ecosystem to help cultivate those relationships. And we really need to develop our own polo academy, a really top rate polo academy, so that when we invite a player or person to, to the sport, we can give them the best experience possible so that they, they, they engage and they, they, don't, they stay engaged. So I'd have to say that that's an area that I think we need to work on. Up to now, as I said, we're relying on the ecosystem to try and help develop those players, and that's uh, a hit and miss. 
Is there enough coordination amongst the international organizations, the Argentinian uh, Polo Association and others to see if there's a, a series of uh, best practice sharing academy kinds of things that can benefit the U.S., for example, or not? Well, we, I think every, every association around the world has the same issues we have. You know, baby boomers are aging out. Yeah. And every equestrian sport has to, to replace those baby boomers that are aging out. So developing schools is something that the Argentines are doing, the English are doing, and it's something that we need to be more focused on. There's just no, no other way to describe it. I think we're a little bit behind the eight ball on that in that respect, and it's an initiative that I've been pushing. So, Stuart, let's talk about COVID for a second. We've got the gauntlet event. We've got every sport dealing with fans, no fans. COVID protocol is something that everybody is following everywhere. What's your current thought about fans and coming back to the sport? And generally, how has COVID impacted the operations? I think equestrian sports generally have really done well during COVID because they're, they're distanced. You don't have to worry about distance when you're talking about equestrian sports. Everybody's well distanced and it's outside. So people have gotten out of the house and said, let's play more polo. We've had one of the biggest years we've had ever with COVID. And the USPA has helped uh, uh, spice up the tournaments by putting up some prize money, providing umpires and doing things to try and uh, invigorate the, the, the sport when, when it could take a downturn. But what we've seen is a, a big uptick. So we're, we're happy with that. All right, five years from now, uh, where is the U.S. Polo Association? I think that the difference that I'm trying to lead towards in the Polo Association is for the, the, the association to take more of a leadership role in, in, in polo. As I said before, the sport has always relied on the ecosystem to carry itself. And that means people that had the, the finances to, to play, in many cases, had facilities like this one that we're in right now. They had nice fields and facilities. And then polo players who can't afford those facilities come and they, they, they all come together in a mixture, a very diverse mixture. But uh, the Polo Association probably needs to take some of the revenues it has and take a position with fields of its own in the proper manner and underpin the sport for the long term. And that's, that's the initiative I'd really like to see accomplished during my chairmanship is for the USPA collectively for us to figure out where and on what basis we want to own some fields to underpin polo for the long term so that we don't take a step back when someone who has been a benefactor has to back away from the sport. Well, Stuart Armstrong gives us some interesting perspective as we get into the Whitney Cup and the gauntlet of polo. It's obviously not just a major sport, but it's a kind of business trade association for everybody wanting to do business South Florida and beyond. Let's talk about sports tech and the sports tech minute. Well, TikTok has become an official sponsor of the summer's delayed Euro 2020 tournament, marking a groundbreaking new global partnership for UEFA, according to the London Evening Standard. And it's the first time a digital entertainment platform sponsored a major international UEFA tournament. And as a global sponsor, UEFA gives TikTok access to its huge library of historical assets to develop highly engaging and innovative content. The partnership also includes broadcast sponsorship rights, giving TikTok brand exposure around UEFA Euro 2020 live match programs across all European broadcast channels. Boasting formal sports partnerships with the NBA and NFL, TikTok's sports presence grown significantly since debuting in 2017. In the soccer space, TikTok also sponsors FIFA and esports team Tundra. Very significant for TikTok, 
And that's our Sports Tech Minute. Finally, Good Sports 5. We'll talk about all of the issues relative to the pandemic, like we always do. Former NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick and Phoenix Suns co-owner Yam Nadafi have filed to form a new SPAC that seeks to identify, acquire, and advance a company to talk about meaningful and social value. A whole new category in a category, SPACs for Good. The NBA plans on featuring healthcare workers and historically black colleges and universities at its all-star celebration. See if it makes the game more palatable to some folks who talk about the logistical challenges with the game in Atlanta. Various English soccer heads have reached out to Facebook and Twitter CEOs in an effort to combat racism. Their hope is that the two CEOs make an effort to have some sort of verification system in process. The CEOs involved in Premier League, English Soccer Leagues, and others, at least putting more effort toward banning users who exhibit racist displays. After crunching the data, Lays targets UEFA. Synopsis Sports says that Lays is debuting a new global campaign centered on uniting and bringing joy to people around the world through football. And then the Patriots make a local push toward STEM education. The New England Patriots Foundation, helmed by Robert Kraft, donated $100,000 to Cape Cod Community College. Uh, And the construction is currently underway for a new community college building with the opening targeted for spring 2023. The Patriots and Robert Kraft continue to excel in being philanthropic. Well, that's our show for the week. We'd like to thank Stuart Armstrong and his perspective on polo, the gauntlet, and business. We'd like to thank all of you who participated in making Super Bowl significant during the pandemic. We'd like to thank you all for listening and watching. And join us next week when we continue to keep score. Action Images is the global multimedia sports agency of Reuters. Leagues, teams and federations around the world rely on Action Images to create, distribute and monetize their content. Action Images' global footprint means sports media expertise is never far away. For more information, visit Action Images.